What is up, my friends? Welcome to the NC Raw podcast. Be sure to check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash NC Raw to subscribe and become a supporter, a patron of the NC Raw podcast. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help support us in the growth and the expansion of our future goals. Uh, we hope to, within the next year, open up a recovery community center that will house our recording studio. Through this studio, we will um, it'll be a place for people in the Western North Carolina area to gather and support each other along this recovery journey and also come together and create some content just like this NT Raw podcast. That's right. I want to give you guys a, give you guys your own podcast. Um, if anybody has any ideas and you want to like get in on that, just let me know. I'm giving away podcasts. We're creating an NC Raw network of podcasts. So be sure to check that out. All patrons receive exclusive content. You get behind the scenes videos, all kinds of uh, advantages to becoming a supporter outside of just uh, uh, supporting us grow. So today's guest is Ashley Meehan. She is truly an inspiration. She has um, been involved in the Western North Carolina area for a little over a year. She moved here from Florida uh, to be a part of Mountain View Recovery Center. And she is truly inspirational. Uh, she truly has a lifetime of lived experience and she's passionate about being of service. I totally enjoyed chatting with her. She's a wonderful woman. Look forward to working with her and talking with her more in the future. So all that being said, give some love to Miss Ashley Meehan. The opinions expressed in this podcast are the views of the NCR team and the individuals interviewed. We do not consider ourselves to be mental health professionals. Our mission is to explore the various pathways to recovery and to give a voice to those affected by or involved in the care of substance use disorders. Some content may be mature for younger audiences. Viewer discretion is advised. Ready, set, go. We are live, Ashley Mian. All right. Sounds good. Welcome to the podcast. Um, it's raining out, so anybody that's tuning in live on Facebook, please bear with us if the video may drop or lag or any of that good stuff. Um, Ashley, you, 
you were one of the first people to message our Facebook page directly. Mm-hmm. It was sometime last year. Um, and you were, you were like very like curious. You were like, <laughs> what is this? And what are you guys doing? Tell me about it. Um, very kind of like direct, but not like confrontational. Uh, and we had like a brief conversation and you, I was, we talked about getting you on at some point mm-hmm. and then I totally dropped the ball and never got back to you. Like never booked it or made it happen. Like, uh, the chaos of the behind the scenes stuff just kind of got away from me and I never threw out the invite to you. And Jake Cannon came on a few months back and he gave me a friendly reminder. Then I went and checked out Mountain View. (laughs) Yeah. He gave me a reminder and I was like, yes, I've talked to Ashley. Why haven't I invited her on? I think we might, it might've been on air when this happened. I was like, why haven't I extended the invite? Um, And so here we are today. Here we are. I just wanted to thank you for, uh, for your time, for driving over the mountain um, as you know, it's a nice hike from Mountain View mm-hmm. out this way. What's this? What's the town or city that it's? Weaverville. Weaverville. Mm-hmm. That's where you guys are. So it is a bit of a hike to get out here. So welcome. Thank, Thank you. you. What um? What is it? Who is Ashley? Right? <laughs> like, how did this happen? How did all this come to be? Where you found yourself? Um from PA by way of Florida to the beautiful town of Asheville or Weaverville and sitting here at a table with myself talking about recovery. Mm. It's so awesome. Isn't it? Yeah, it really is. And by the way, thank you. And going through the mountains and through the woods and over the hill and, you know, it was great. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I love North Carolina. It's beautiful. And I'm so grateful to be here and blessed. So thank you for inviting me for sure. Um, every single person that I talk to is like, you have got to talk to Ashley. She's like, people have heard you speak in various locations and they're like, Ashley drops it. Ashley brings it. So awesome. um, I love to hear that. That's inspiring to me. You know, I, gosh, you know, uh, I've been through a lot, you know, and I really just try to be true to myself and, you know, try to deliver a, a clear uh, precise message of recovery. You know, wherever I go, it doesn't matter if I'm talking at a Narcotics Anonymous meeting, if I'm talking at a business meeting, if I'm talking in church, if I'm talking here, you know, because recovery is so much more than just sharing your story, right? Yes. It's literally changing and living your life a different way. So, you know, who's Ashley Meehan? Um, I can answer that so many ways. And, and also just to to chime in like that authenticity of like, I talk about this a lot, but that authenticity of like, I'm going to be the same person. I'm going to speak the same way, whether I meet you in the rooms, whether you're sitting here on my podcast, whether I'm walking across campus and somebody stops me and talks to me for a minute, like you're going to get the same Steve wherever you bump into Mm -hmm. me. There's not these different personas or people that are may Mm -hmm. or may not, interact with you you're going to get the same person it's it's a it's a solid level of authenticity mm-hmm. um and i pride myself on that regardless of like what the state of mind is or what my emotional state is like For sure. gotta put all that stuff to the side i chose a path 
I have clearly identified my personal values and the things that are important to me. And I'm going to put those first and I'm mm-hmm. going, those are, those are going to be with me wherever I go. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the reality is, is how you treat other people is a direct reflection of your life. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I can sit here and, you know, think thoughts to myself positively, but if I go out into the world and I'm mean to people and I treat people terribly or, you know, I'm one person one way. And then when I get around you, I'm a different, you know, I'm a different way. Like that's only creating misery for myself, right? That's not being true to myself. That's not who I am. That's, you know, coming from an emotional reactive place. It's, you know, that whole reacting instead of responding component, Mm -hmm. right? And don't get me wrong, I'm human. So, you know, sometimes people make me mad, right? (laughs) I mean, that's human nature, but I ha- I'm not in control of how people make me feel, but I am in control of how I react to that. Mm-hmm. So I know that you could be having a bad day, right? And you could treat me a certain way. And maybe I take what you say the wrong way and all of a sudden I'm feeling it, right? But how I react to you could truly impact the rest of your day. So if I'm like, you know what, Stephen, like, don't talk to me like that. Get away from me you know, you don't deserve to talk to me like that, or I don't deserve this, and then I run away, you know? I mean, how is that resolving anything, right? But if I'm like, I understand what you're going through, or maybe you're going through something, like, what, what's up? Mm-hmm. You know, is there something I can help you with? You know, I kind of feel like how you talk to me wasn't, you know, wasn't how you usually talk to me. Is there something going on that I can help you with? You know, you're going to have a totally different outcome versus you know, attacking, right? I mean, that's how interacting with people are. You you have to not adjust to the person you're talking to, like we said, always having that authenticity. Wow, I said that way wrong. But, you know, being able to communicate where you're at, but then also remember that there's two people involved in the conversation. It's not all about you all the time. But it's so hard to remove yourself. <laughs> Right. And the the fact of the matter is that everybody's going through something. Mm-hmm. Right. We're all walking this this world of life together and you don't know where you catch people, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and you hit on like treating people the way that you would like to be treated. However, our emotions and. Uh, things like that can often get the best of us. And one of the things that is so important to understand is that, and recognize is that that's just human nature. And like Mm -hmm. that's kind of stuff will happen. And the monumental part is to recognize it, right. And to Mm -hmm. catch it, even if it's after the fact, just to recognize that, Hey, my emotions got the best of me in that interaction or, Hey, my emotions got the best of me today. Mm-hmm. How can I resolve that? Right. How can I do that? How could I, how could I have handled that situation better the next time? Mm-hmm. Everybody's going through something. Right. And the more you can do that, <clears throat> the, the better it's a, it's a skill that you develop. Right. And the better, the more that you can do that, the better that the better skilled you become at addressing these uncomfortable situations mm-hmm. you know i was driving to work yesterday morning and i i had left my coffee mug my big coffee mug at work the day before something i never do mm. and i was driving so i had to i had to stop and get coffee on the way to work 
and <laughs> I was driving to work and I literally was like a mile from my job. I was pulling in to grab some coffee and my car died. Oh, my car no. just like shut off. I got to be there in 30 minutes. I have to have the store open. I work a little retail job downtown, little department store, old school deal. Mm-hmm. And I'm the manager on duty. I got the keys to the store in my pocket. I'm like a mile away. My oh, car no. just died, right? And like for just a brief moment, I was just like, fuck. <laughs> yeah. Right. Worst but nightmare. Then for a second, I was just like, well, you know what? Like, it's not a big deal. Like yeah. you you're you can figure all this out. Um, I popped a hood and you know, kind of find out it just looks like my battery terminal is kind of like busted and I need to, I need to buy a new one. Took, I took this nice water bottle and I just kind of beat on it a little bit <laughs> <laughs> and the car fired right up, you know? That's and great. so like all my list of things to do is obviously to get a new, a new battery terminal in the next like 24 hours mm. and get that thing fixed. But like five years ago, mm. that would have been the end of the world, mm-hmm. right? Five years ago, I would have gone inside the store, been an asshole to the guy at the counter for no reason. He, he wouldn't have deserved it. Then I would have got figured out how to get to work, hitched a ride or walk down there and been a complete dick the whole rest of the day because something happened to me, right? Mm-hmm. Something that's totally normal, something that's totally natural, something that happens to people every single day of the week, mm-hmm. right? But why me? Mm-hmm. Why me today on this beautiful Sunday morning? Why do I have to work when it's 65 <laughs> degrees out and sunny and all my friends are out playing in the trail and playing at the lake and I'm stuck at work? And it would just like create this catapult of bullshit that's not even true. For sure. And I would have believed all of it, right? Yeah, for sure. And I think like in a situation like that, you can also look at the other side of it. Like something happened that caused you to, you know, stop, right? What if you, your battery didn't die or you had your bug that day and all of a sudden you're driving down the road and an accident happens? You know, to me, I feel like you can look at the problem or you can look at the solution. So yeah, I mean, is it a shitty day? I'm sorry, I'm going to call it what it is. Sounds like a, a, a shitty start to the day, mm-hmm. right? But it's all in your outlook and, and your perspective on, on how you view it. Because you can also be very grateful that, you know what? Number one, your battery worked again. Like, I've never heard that before. I don't don't know if anyone has, but tap, tap, all of a sudden my car works. But hey, I mean, that's awesome, Mm -hmm. right? Um, But, you know, that situation might have saved your life. And you might not have even known that. Or you might have saved someone else's. What happens if you were distracted? You got this coffee. All of a sudden you put it in your, you know, your little... um, cup holder in your car and oh shoot like it's just a little too full and it spills and you look down and you're trying to wipe this and oh my gosh there's an accident out of nowhere you know like it's things like that and I feel like we spend a lot of time looking at oh shit my day could have been better oh this could have happened or why did this happen instead of being like you know what like this happened for a reason Mm -hmm. and I'm grateful that even though it happened you know what I have a job that I can show up to you know (laughs) I have a car that got me from A to B right? You know, you can have money to buy coffee. And if you don't have coffee, you're not going to die, you know, (laughs) and everything's going to be okay. I mean, to me, that's still a pretty good day. Yeah, for real. You're totally right. I like how when you get fired up, the PA comes out. Oh yeah. And the, and the talking, like Uh it happens. And the hands. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's the Italian thing though. But you know, how did, uh, how'd you end up in the mountains? Oh, so, um, well, I, I, 
you know, born and raised in Pennsylvania, lived there till I would say about 20 years old. Um, I'm in recovery. So, uh, I did a lot of drugs in Pennsylvania and had a lot of negative acquaintances and I really needed to make a move. If I didn't, I was definitely going to die. Um, and that's all I'm really going to say about that because I mean, the reality is, is if you do drugs and you do them long enough, you won't survive it. And that's the path that I was heading. So I did relocate to Florida and, um, you know, I took me with me. <laughs> Let me just say that. Um, I definitely continued to do what I was doing in Pennsylvania and Florida. So um, Florida did not cure me. It was definitely nicer down there. So it was easier to do what I was doing and things were more accessible. Um, but my family put a bottom line down for me and, um, you know, they cut me off and, and truly they saved my life. And uh, that's how I got to Florida. And I lived there for about eight years and I met my husband and, uh, you know, badass, I, by the way. Yeah, I love him. He's he's goofy. He's smart. He's loving. He's hilarious. Yeah. He cracks me up. <laughs> he is. And he's from New York, which is even better. I mean, he has that like New York twang, you know. Uh -huh. All right. <laughs> I, I got two questions. Sure. J Jets or Giants? He's a Giants, but I'm not. Yankees, Mets? Mets. Okay. I can handle that. I mean, look, I can, I'm okay with Giants, that. but I'm not okay with the Mets because if you're going to have the Giants, we need the Phillies. It's just the right thing, you know? You can't have them both. It's, not, it's just not fair. Um, funny story, actually, because one of my best friends from Florida got a blanket made for our son when he was born, named Samantha, and she got his name on a half Giants, half Eagles blanket. Okay. okay? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. You would have thought that the world was ending. Eric flipped out. Eric flipped. <laughs> he was like, he's not sleeping with that blanket. I'm oh, yeah. like, um, he's three months old. <laughs> yes. He's not going to remember, but just chill. Mm -hmm. But uh, but yeah, you know how New Yorkers are. It's so. not the remembering. It's the influence. You can't have that kind of influence in, yeah. on my child. It was it was really funny. And of course, my mom bought him a, um, an Eagles sweatshirt. Um, from like the stadium and one day Eric wasn't home. So I was like, oh, I'm going to put it on him. He's never going to know. I'm going to start it while he's young. You know, would you believe it? I put it on him and it had that stupid little security tag thing on it. Oh, yeah, he yeah. couldn't even wear it. Mm -hmm. I was like, this is bullshit. Excuse my language. I'm sorry, but you can say anything you want, <laughs> but you know, so he won on that one. Um, I think he's up a tab right now, but, uh, but yeah, so that's, that's kind of my journey in Florida. I built my career in Florida. Um, I went back to school in Florida several times. And um, you found recovery first in Florida. Yes. Yes, I did. I found recovery in Florida in 2012. What was that defining moment that led you to that? <sighs> well, um, actually, you know, I don't. Somebody said to me a long time ago that your bottom is when you choose to stop digging. And I felt like that was really powerful because personally, I wasn't going to stop digging. Like I had to be six feet under to stop me. So being able to choose my bottom brought some relief to me. And the last time that I used, I didn't lose anything. I'm just being yeah. honest. You know, I, um, I was in a car driving home from work with this girl and she was passing a joint around the car. I think I had like 90 days clean at that time. And you know, I had met some really good people in recovery and uh, somebody opened their home to me. I love her to death. She's like an angel. Um, and I really didn't have a reason to use, you know what I mean? And I couldn't think of an excuse to use yet. I still was like, hey, can I hit that? Yeah. 
you know. You hadn't acquired the skills on how to. No. Mm-hmm. And, and it was so instant. Like I had no plan whatsoever to hit that joint or to get high that day, you know, or ever really. But it just happened. And, you know, I remember hitting it and I only hit it like three times. But instantly I wanted to die. I hated myself. I was so disappointed. The self-hatred just came flooding in. And I was just like, I can't believe I did this to myself. Like I literally just risked risked everything that, I mean, gives me a bed to sleep at night, you know? Like the lady that I was living with was in recovery for 10 years. So she could have easily, like when I came home, been like, you're high, get out of my house. You're homeless in Florida yet again. You know, Eric put a hard line down on me and told me if you use again, you can't be in my life. I had a lot of like good support that they just were not going to co-sign my bullshit. You know, my family, like, to let them down again. I mean, I, I, at that point, I wasn't even developing a relationship with them again, you know, because I had hurt them so many times and made so many false promises. So so having gone through that, having gone through these um, hard lines in the sand and kind of um, heavy boundaries, right, mm-hmm. from your family and stuff, like, having personally experienced that, what... And looking back on that now and working in the field and working with clients and probably families and stuff like that, mm-hmm. like what is the most appropriate way to approach and love on and compassionately meet a loved one who is experiencing that extreme suffering mm-hmm. that's caused by addiction? Because mm-hmm. it's like you go on social media, talk to different people. You're going to get a thousand different things, right? People telling you what to do and how to cut them off, tough love, this and that. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you meet somebody with a compassionate boundary? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm really glad that you that you asked this, you know. And, you know, the first thing I want to say is there's absolutely no one way, right? There's no... Just like recovery, yeah. Right, mm-hmm. yeah, and and... You're dealing not only with the individual, but the family. So, you know, I always talk when I, you know, I've ran groups previously on codependency. And you have to remember that codependency is not just about the individual that's struggling. It's more, you know, more or less about the person on the other side. So it takes two to tango, right? Wherever there's codependency, there's always two sides to it. So or three sides or, you know, it's not one sided. So... And that's just relationally in general. Like anywhere, exactly. You know, yeah. Exactly. So uh, I'll give you an example. I, I met this gentleman who, um, 45 years old, older gentleman, um, you know, uh, smoked marijuana for many years. Previously, as a, a young adult, did harder drugs, but grew up, you know, and, and um, started using marijuana and, you know, just playing video games all day. But, you know, he was stuck in his social life. And... You know, I had him in a group one time and I kept asking him, you know, what's your goal in life? Like, what, what's your goal? Because you could really live with smoking marijuana and, and playing video games for the rest of your life. The consequences aren't extreme enough to, yeah. Excuse me, you could. Uh-huh. Exactly. You know, and, you know, he kept giving answers, giving answers. Finally, he said to me, well, I want to be happy. So I said, okay, you want to be happy? Are you happy smoking marijuana every day and playing video games? Some people are, right? Some people are. And that, that would have led me, you know, prompted me to the next mm-hmm. part. But he said no, you know. And I said, okay, so if you're not happy doing that, you have to do something different. And one of his biggest barriers was his family had always been financially supportive of him. So they're paying his rent, you know. 
if he lives over here, they're paying that. He has barely held a job. He has absolutely no consequences. And he knows like, okay, well, if I get kicked out of this place, I can just go somewhere else, right? No pressure. Right. Mm -hmm. And he's not doing heroin or crack or everything that, you know, people believe will kill you. Um, yet he's still stuck, okay? And that's what it boils down to. And it's not about me um, uh, measuring your level of stuck or my level of stuck, right? It's about him leveling his level of happiness, yeah. right? I mean, bottom line is, are you happy? And if you're not, then you have to do something different because what you're doing is not working. And, you know, what I told him was, look, do I think you should go to your parents and say, cut me off completely and leave me homeless in the middle of the street so I have nowhere to live and then I have a consequence. No, absolutely not. But do I think you need to write up a contract for yourself and then present it to them so both parties are involved and say, okay, you know, mom, maybe you could pay for my rent for a month, right? That'll give me enough time to practice interviewing for a job, to put my resume out there, to have a deadline, right? Where I know in a month, like my funding's cut off. So I need to do the work to possibly get a job to be able to start self, you know, self-supporting and, you know, just go that route. So, you know, everybody's different, but the thing about addiction is it's a family disease. So, you know, the individual usually is, is high on drugs, right? So it affects the family almost more intensely because they're watching their loved one kill themselves. So, you know, there needs to be therapy all around yeah. is what I'm alluding to. It can't be a one-person show. I can't go to treatment and get better and then go home and expect everybody to be better because Ashley's better. Like, people need to, to be educated and learn about it so they can get better too because I hurt them, right? I mean, I damaged a lot of people in active addiction, especially my family, you know, it, People who are addicted to drugs and alcohol tend to steal, manipulate, lie, cheat. <laughs> I mean, you know, whatever, their their reality is distorted. So, you know, to expect them to all of a sudden become compassionate, loving, open, honest, you know, um, transparent individuals after 30 days or 60 days or really I'm just going to be raw like after six months. I mean, it takes time to get there. And, you know, time takes time. So, you know, one year, two years, three years, five years, I don't know what it takes. But I know for me in my life, there has been different times, even in my recovery, where I realized I was complacent and I needed to do something different to get out of my own way. Because if I'm stuck, I'm stuck. I've been there. Yeah, <laughs> you know? I've been there. What, um, what was that process like for you in regaining some of that trust from your loved ones mm. like how did that because again it's different for everybody yeah and sometimes you're ready and they're not mm -hmm. or they're ready and you're not mm -hmm. like how do you walk that that path of forgiveness that path of redemption mm -hmm. um what type of effects did that have on both you and the family yeah so it's funny because every time i talk about my family you'll see my whole like demeanor changes, you know, my physical condition changes. Um, but, you know, I love my family and I know my family loves me. You know, I, I have a wonderful family and, um, you know, growing up in Pennsylvania, I have, I have two brothers, I have two stepbrothers, a stepsister, a mom, a stepdad, a stepmom, a dad. So I have a pretty big family. 
and lots of aunts and uncles and cousins and so on. That's um, the Italian. Area. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. But although my dad's not Italian, he's Polish mixed mutt. I- I'm not sure, but <laughs> he's got a big family too. So I don't know. But, um, uh, you know, it was hard. I did not get everything back overnight. In fact, some things that are really hard for me to um, have truth about, I still don't have back, you know, Mm -hmm. over seven years later. I did a lot of damage in a very short period of time. And, you know, the thing about recovery is, or the program, I guess I should say, you know, the only promise is freedom from active addiction. doesn't promise you that, you know, your mom's going to forgive you for everything that you've done or you're going to get your children back or you know, you're going to grow up and, and, and get a college education and live in this big home. Like you need to do the work to do that. Right. And sometimes it's not possible. So, um, you know, one of the things that I tried to do this time around was I really tried, cause I said, I'm sorry. So many times I can't even count how many times I looked at my mother and my mother's like, are you okay? Like, do you need help? And I'm just like, no, I'm fine. Really? I was dying inside. <laughs> And then when I finally, you know, went to treatment, I'd be like, I'm sorry. And she would just be like, I don't even know how many times you've told me that. Like, it means nothing anymore. And um, devalued the word. For sure. Mm -hmm. And when I finally started looking at what I was doing to other people and not just myself, you know, I I was able to kind of open my eyes a little bit more and pay attention to my own actions and bring awareness to myself. Right. So in early recovery, I kind of didn't push too much towards my family because I wanted to prove to them that I was going to change and I was going to do something different. And slowly but surely, I kind of, you know, started talking to them again. But I mean, I, I hurt a lot of people. And yeah, I can remember calling my house and my family being like, don't call my house again until you have a year clean. Like, I can't do this anymore, you know. And at the time, I hated them. I was like, what do you mean? You, you know, you don't love me. How could you do this to me? Oh, my God, you know. But taking things very personally. Yes. Yeah. It was all about Ashley, yeah. right? The self-centered uh, core of this disease. Um, but I realized that they were trying to save my life because they felt like the, con- the continuous enabling, you know, was was hurting me. And they didn't have to hear that from you, right? Or from another person. They had evidence by my own actions. Mm-hmm. I taught them that. Mm-hmm. So they were like, okay, we got to do something different or, you know, Ashley could die. During that process, right, while you were essentially working to regain their trust through your actions, mm-hmm. what type of self-forgiveness work were you doing? Mm-hmm. On? What type you were talking about, like this internal shift and mm-hmm. internal changes that you were making? Mm-hmm. What it sounds like is that you probably needed to do some forgiving of yourself mm-hmm. prior to. For sure, absolutely. Uh, so I did steps, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm a, anybody who knows me, I'm a program girl. You know, I really feel like the solutions are in the steps because I believe that when you learn enough about yourself and you bring that awareness, you know, then you have the ability to be able to change and spirit, the spiritual principles behind the steps, you know, and it's not just about hope, faith, courage, brotherly love, honesty, you know, there's so many more than just one behind the steps. Like, obviously, if you're learning how to surrender, you have to be accepting of who you are, right, and what you're doing. You have to have an open mind to change, right? You have to become willing to change. You have to, you know, be honest about where you're at. And you have to humble yourself that clearly 
If you think that you know everything all the time, if I thought that I knew everything all the time, it's time to think different because I'm either going to get the same results and probably die or I'm going to become willing to change. So, I mean, and that alone is about the first step, right? And I feel like, you know, there's not a lot of education when it comes to that. And a lot of, and this is just my perception, you know, but there's so much more time and energy that could be spent on just those six words, right? To learn how to be able to practice that in our lives. And those things would impact my life so much if I just internalize them a little bit more, right? Mm -hmm. So it was really in the beginning, it was about doing the opposite of what I was doing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> just be the total opposite of crazy Ashley and active addiction. Try to buy into those spiritual principles mm -hmm. and understand them. Mm -hmm. And then understand how to apply them mm -hmm. to your life. Um, so I'm not knowledgeable mm -hmm. or versed in any of the 12 step lingo mm -hmm. at all. I've been a, a member of the Refuge Recovery Fellowship since 2014. Okay. And what it sounds like, however, like I've talked to many people at the table, mm -hmm. um, but what it sounds like is kind of like what attracted me to the Refuge Recovery model in the fact that we practice these types of ethical values, I, I guess you could say, um, in it's kind of like a, it's a nonlinear path. Like all of those spiritual principles are connected to each other. Mm -hmm. Like you essentially can't, uh, apply or know one without being comfortable with the other, right? Mm -hmm. Cause they're going to influence and they're going to affect each other. Mm -hmm. Um, you don't just wake up and say, I'm going to be the most humblest bitch on the planet. Of course. <laughs> I mean, I wish. <laughs> yeah. Shoot, if we could yeah. do that, let me know how. It's, uh, it's d definitely like direct action and a little bit of like wisdom and insight into, mm -hmm. into who you are and what's happening. Um, so at what point along this journey did you decide that Ashley was going to not just be of service for her program, but to go out and work in the field <laughs> <laughs> in, in uh, South Florida yeah. at the time, right? When there was probably some stigma and stuff attached to just the industry yeah. itself. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's funny because I'm blessed when I got clean. Um, you know, when I put down drugs and alcohol in the lifestyle, Florida wasn't classified the way that it is today. What year was that? I got clean 2012, the beginning okay. of 2012. So February 20th, 2012 is my clean date. And, um, you know, at that time, I mean, I can remember waiting for a bus for two hours. It wasn't very populated. You know, um, I believe if not like right before, maybe shortly after was when the whole like pill mill thing started. Just um, when it really escalated. Yeah. Right. Right. Like within a year, I mean, you're talking about treatment centers popping up on every corner and all of a sudden heroin was in Florida. That wasn't big when I, you know, was living there. Thank God. Um, and I really mean that. And I wholeheartedly I would, thank I would God. totally agree with you. Oh. I wouldn't be alive today if things were happening. Oh, me like neither. Me neither. You know, um, and then, um, you know, I started working in treatment when I had about a year clean and I started as a tech and, um, I worked for a pretty large treatment center. There was about 120 patients there at a time. And, uh, there was only like three or four of us on. So, you know, four of us kind of managed like 120 people. Of course we weren't clinicians, we were technicians and it was fun because I got to hang out with a bunch of addicts and alcoholics. Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, that's the best job ever. 
And um, I learned very quickly that I, I, I personally believed that I had a little bit more to give. And I believe that because I invested a little bit more time in people and like got to know them a little bit more where they were coming to me if they were struggling with something, you know, or um, if they needed help with something. And I always kept that firm boundary. So that being said, I watched a lot of people come in and work that could not hold boundaries. And, you know, you have to know what kind of person you are. And that doesn't mean that the person's a bad person or a good person. It just means that, you know, maybe it's not the right fit because sometimes they come from a um, selfish place, right? Kind of like when you see somebody work in treatment who's attracted to a newcomer. I mean, somebody who walks into the treatment center should feel safe where they are, right? And um, should not even have to even think about that. So, uh, you know, somebody said to me early on, you know, you should go to school for this. And uh, I was like, no way. Do you know who you're talking to? Yeah. (laughs) I'm not going to school. I tried that three times and, you know, I'm still paying for student loans, but I'm not going to school. And, um, you know, uh, a friend in recovery reached out to me and said, okay, why don't you start working in admissions? And I was like, what's that? You know, I had no idea. And they're like, well, you can talk to people over the phone the same way you talk to people one-on-one, but you get paid more money. And I'm just being honest, you know, I'm being transparent. And um, so I checked it out. And I actually took a job working for a treatment center that was transitioning from an an eating disorder facility into substance abuse. Mm -hmm. So there was only three of us there. It was a very small um, admissions department. And we got to do everything from intake to... Uh, you know, greeting the client, doing tours, to actually admitting them, to insurance, to assessments. So I got to learn a lot of the ins and outs in that, you know, that realm. And, um, you know, I had a a boss at the time who taught me a lot and uh, exposed me to a lot. And really, I mean, um, I realized that I could do that and go back to school. Like, I, I found out about the internet. <laughs> you know, I was like, wait a second, what have I been missing all this time? <laughs> you mean I can go to school online? I can do this, you know? And I was very blessed because he allowed me, because it was, you know, it was still slow at that time to do a lot of my schooling while I was working. Um, and, and pretty much I did that for two years. So I did a lot of online classes. I did supervision at another um, treatment facility. And, um, you know, then I sat for my international test. And I mean, listen, you want to talk about rewarding? <laughs> the day I got that, I was like, holy shit, I completed something, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And I mean, it, it was really just, it, it was up from there. And, you know, I think setting those little goals for myself and realizing that I can achieve those things became very important in my in my life, not just my recovery process, but in my life, realizing that, you know what? Like the only limits and barriers that I have are the ones I put on myself. Yeah. And then experiencing the results of yeah. knowing that. Yeah. And that's a lot to accomplish in a fairly short period of time, two, two and a half years yeah. ish. Yeah, for sure. It was. It was. And actually I didn't stop there because I went back to school for billing and coding and I got my certification for that and, and I did that whole um whole twist. And honestly, I think I would probably go back to school again. Um I really believe strongly in educating myself and and for people to educate themselves because again the sky is the limit yeah the skies are the limit and i've talked about this a lot that like i feel like i did like 
so much damage to my brain <laughs> over the years and like a disservice to myself <laughs> that like I'm just fascinated with learning and it doesn't mm -hmm. have to be in the classroom setting like I want to read as many books as I can I want to listen to as many podcasts as I can and even like doesn't have to be specifically in the field of addiction or in mm -hmm. the realm of recovery like I want to learn about like just weird stuff that doesn't even matter <laughs> to anybody we're talking about this. um i listen to just some crazy podcasts throughout the week and i'm just fascinated with learning like people will ask me i'll meet somebody new and they'll be like what kind of music do you listen to and i'll just like i won't know what to say <laughs> because i mean yeah i like listen to some tunes every now and then but like i would prefer to learn mm -hmm. and that's how i learn well is through that and so like i think it's a part of like growing up Mm -hmm. that's a polite way of saying of getting old, but it's mm -hmm. a, it's a Aww. part of growing up is that like, I find value in like those sorts of things to continue, um, challenging myself, challenging my brain to like, cause like I'll listen to as many podcasts or audio books or books as I can. And I'll probably retain about 10% of the information <laughs> that I, um, that I set out to learn, you know? Yeah. So <clears throat> at what point did things get like shady down there? Were, well, you, were you around for that? Were you in the... Well, I'm actually lucky because I had really, really good mentors. Excuse me. I have a cold. I'm sorry. You need a tissue? I got uh, tissues. No, I'm, I'm totally okay. okay. I think it's just the, the flare up of the allergies and being in the mountains. Um, but I, I dodged a lot of that, you know, and I think it's because like the path that I was on to like be a clinician, to learn more, the mentors that I had were, you know, they were clinicians, they were doctors, they were, you know, um, supervisors. Um, they weren't these, you know, they weren't people that were making the industry shady, I mm -hmm. guess is the best way to put that. Um, cause I don't want to classify a position because I don't think that's right. I do think that there is people who do the right thing out there. Um, and I don't think it's right to judge everybody. Right. Yeah. Um, so personally it, I would say about 2015 ish is when things really started to change. And, you know, you would see these treatment centers with IOPs and people didn't have to pay rent. Let me just tell you something. Okay. When I graduated from treatment or whatever you want to call it, completed treatment, I was not staying in Florida unless I had $200 a week to go to a halfway house. Mm -hmm. They didn't care about your insurance. They didn't ask what kind of insurance you have. Um, and when you when they were suspicious, they paid for a drug test and they drug tested you. Um, I went to the place, I went to a place called The Lodge and it was by the book. You know, actually, I got kicked out for breaking rules and I didn't even get high. Mm -hmm. I just broke the rules. Um and then it shifted and people started saying, hey, you can go to my IOP and you can live in this house for free. And, you know, and then there was that whole like lab scandal where people were labbing at halfway houses, which is totally illegal in Florida. If it's not illegal here, I don't know why. I'm just going to flat out say that. Um, you know, from a clinical standpoint, I don't know how you can justify doing that when they're not being managed at a level of care. I, I don't get it unless the treatment center is the one labbing it. But anyway... Um, that's a outside issue. Um, but yeah, I mean, and then, you know, you saw different people starting to come around. I mean, people who had like five months clean, six months clean, um, operations at treatment centers. And you're just like, what is going on? You know, personally, and this is just my, my view and my perspective. 
I don't think anybody should be running a treatment center unless they're educated and also um, unless they have several years uh, of recovery. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how you have, I don't want to say how you have something to give because everybody has something to give. But I would say about the first three, four years of my recovery, I needed to do a lot of intense healing on my own <laughs> before I could step into a, um, a, you know, an administer role and really be a, a role model, right? A good role model. Because how I present myself is ultimately what people are going to see. What kind of person am I, right? And it goes back to what you were saying because, you know, I used to be the person that listens to the, and I'm not knocking on people who listen to rap, okay? I'm not going there. But, you know, some dirty, dirty music, right? And now I listen to Jesus music. <laughs> I'm like, what's going on here? Am I getting old? Like, look at these grays in my hair. Like, I don't see it oh, there. they're there. I, I don't see nothing. Oh, they're there. And, you know, it's just like I'm changing. And I continue to change because I continue to do work on myself and I continue to find things about myself that I like and things that I don't like and that I, that I want to change, <laughs> Yeah, you know, but you're not doing a, a true inventory if you're not finding things that you don't like. Right. Right. It's oh, I there. find things <laughs> yeah. every day. Ask my husband. <clears throat> <clears throat> so, um, take it back a little bit with all that stuff going on. Couple years clean working treatment, admissions intake and going to school mm -hmm. right it's a lot mm -hmm. on somebody's plate how what was it like to like balance all of that and still stay active in your mm -hmm. fellowship and mm -hmm. still stay active in your own personal recovery and how did you find a way to balance that because mm -hmm. you talked about setting firm boundaries mm -hmm. like with your clients and stuff um, I don't think that that's a natural skill mm -hmm. that we possess. I think that that's definitely something that we must learn, develop, practice. Definitely. Right? Definitely. I mean, I, I quit smoking cigarettes the end of 2012. and uh, Share your secrets. Oof. Listen, <laughs> I, and I use, honestly, like this might sound really cliche, but I swear to you, I use meetings. I walked into meetings and I'm like, I really want to smoke a cigarette. And people are probably like, who the hell is this bitch? Can she just go away and stop talking? <laughs> you know, but I needed that and it uh -huh. worked, you know? Um, so you just cold turkeyed it and shared about I it. I did, I did. But honestly, I did also shift a little bit and this gets into what you were asking. Um, you know, I, I was kind of chunky as a teenager and um, I hated the mile run at school. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but when they're like, you got to run the mile, I'm like, my ankle's broken. Um, and I always had like, the 20 minutes when everybody else had like the eight minutes. But, um, so I was like, you know what? I'm going to challenge myself and I'm going to try running, you know, cause I was so bad at it. I was like, maybe I could do that instead of smoke a cigarette. And, um, you know, cause it does a lot exercise, endorphins. you know, releases endorphins. Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, the first day I think I got on the treadmill, I ran like a minute. Second day, five minutes. You Progress. Know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. By like month, you know, two, I think I was running like four miles in 45 minutes. And, you know, a lot of people would say, oh, well, that's not that good. You know what? It was pretty damn good from where I came from. And, um, you know, that kind of became um, a healthy, like, you know, corporate, like I incorporated that in my recovery, but I also continued to attend meetings and work on myself. So, you know, the first three, four years of my recovery, I was still discovering what balance was. And I'm just going to be real raw and honest. You know, some days I was like, this is a lot. 
you know, I don't know if I can do this. Um, but I had a cheerleader in my corner, you know, and I had friends that were, you know, strong in recovery who were like, um, you can do anything you put your mind to, you know, if you stop, that's because you're stopping yourself. And, um, you know, uh, I just continued on. And, you know, like I said, once I completed school, like, and I got that letter in the mail, <laughs> I was like, wow, this feels good. You know, I was like, okay, uh, all right. Like one of those sky's the limit moments. Yeah. Like see it. Yeah. It's, you know, you like to read. I'm a terrible reader because I have, my brain does something. And I think it's from all the holes in there. But when I start reading after like, 15 pages I doze off I cannot stay awake that's okay that's a decent pace oh but I have to listen try, to it try, an audio, try an audio book yeah that's yeah fine. yeah yeah so I, yeah I totally learn better through audio audiobooks and through podcasts but I like to take notes mm-hmm. so like I'll typically buy a book on on audible and purchase the Kindle version at the same time. They give you like a discount if you buy them both at the same time. So I'll purchase them both at the same time. So if I hear something that just I just have to yeah. highlight and note it, then I'll flip over to the the Kindle version and and document that. Is fitness still a part of your oh my gosh process no. today? It needs to be. <laughs> um, you know, I've kind of been in and out, and you know, I got married in 2014, and in 2000. Um, the end of 2014, uh, we got pregnant and we did. Yeah. Yeah. Go on. Um, and I lost that baby, mm. um, a couple months into 2015 and I definitely became very, um, I don't want to say depressed. It was definitely situational, but it hit me pretty hard. Um, and, uh, you know, I gained a lot of weight from that and then I lost it again. And then I got pregnant with my son, Connor. <laughs> And I gained a lot of weight again, and then I lost a lot of weight again. So um, it's something, it's an area that I need to continuously work on. And um, when I have stress in my life or when I get distracted by a lot of other things. Chaos. <laughs> yes. It tends to fall by the wayside. So it? It does. So that should be the opposite. When, the, when all the chaos is, the storm is rolling in, that, that should be like the automatic place to turn. Oh my gosh, I know. But I have right? such a full life. I'm not yeah, making excuses. I, know, so I could I. I could wake up earlier. Okay. Let me just be clear about that. Um, you know. You like to sleep in. <laughs> my son likes to wake me up. Does he? <laughs> if I had it my way, I would sleep an extra hour, but the um the first like four years of recovery, being in the refuge recovery fellowship and a I spent all my time like studying the Dharma, meditating, like studying Buddhist psychology, all mind work and Mm -hmm. all mind healing. I was an athlete in high school and stuff like that. Um, But all of my effort was put into the the internal healing up Mm. here. Not a drop of it was in fitness at all (laughs) nothing and um this year i was like all right try to quit smoking you see i got my nicotine lozenges right here and like try to quit smoking it's been very challenging i was like i gotta start 30 turning 38 years old this year i'm like i gotta start Mm -hmm. taking care of my body the same way that i've learned to take care of my mind Mm -hmm. my co-host Caleb's like a 
ultra marathon runner. Oh, like, man. That's his path that's awesome. of recovery, right? This dude is just insane when it comes to that. So, like, he kind of influenced that a little bit. So, I started going to the gym at mm-hmm. school. And, gosh, let me tell you, it was a very <laughs> similar experience to you. You know, I'm like, all right, let me run a mile. Okay, maybe I'll just start with a half a mile on my first day. And, you know, but it, the progress came. Mm-hmm. But the most important thing that I noticed was that um, that anxiety and yes. that stress relief and like those things that I the the the, the benefits that I experienced from just running on the treadmill mm-hmm. were almost identical to my meditation practice mm-hmm. in a sense that it relieved so many of those things that were bothering me, so many of those things that were on my mind mm-hmm. that now try to go like three to four days a week it's at school um, on campus and now what I really try to do is every Monday before with these shows I try to get over there and just knock out I'm up to like between three and five miles now that's awesome um, but it's at the same pace about nine to ten minutes you know yeah. not, I'm not it ain't a, it ain't a sprint we're just cruising listening to a book while we're doing it I love that. no music just books. Um, it really affects my mindset going into these conversations. It allows me to just kind of like wind down. Mm-hmm. So like today, I pulled up to the gym. I was at the library working on some assignment, <laughs> and I was in there for like an hour and a half. I'm like, all right, you got to go. You got to go work out. You got to go knock out some cardio. Pulled up to the gym, grabbed my gym bag out of the back of my car, and get into the locker room and I realized that I didn't bring a towel with oh, me. No. Oh, <laughs> and no. it wouldn't be a big deal, but I have to take a shower because I can't come in here all smelly and stuff like that. So I didn't get I didn't get it in today. But <laughs> I'm telling you those those Super towel. <laughs> those those benefits for up here has just been like mm-hmm. phenomenal. Like I, I cannot I cannot suggest it and recommend it. Mm-hmm. And I think that like when you take a step back and you look at traditional like air quotes traditional mindsets traditional pathways the idea of what people have of recovery of the rooms Mm -hmm. and stuff like that a lot of the language a lot of the it does not focus on physical fitness Mm -hmm. right like you hear a lot about the spiritual practices and various things but you Mm -hmm. don't nobody really places and you think about like the the outsider looking in you think about like coffee drinkers and smokers oh yeah and nobody's really talking about not many people are talking about the benefits of healthy nutrition Mm -hmm. benefits of exercise and those things Uh, myself being one of them you know but i just think that it's like an important part of this whole this whole personal shift in the way that we live for sure incorporating those into treatment centers and mm-hmm. things like that um when did you guys move up here how did what what brought you to the mountains like of all the places in the world being a girl from pa uh-huh. down to florida what what led to the mountains yeah so first of all i want to say that florida is way too hot for this girl okay I, there's nothing worse than a girl who likes to wear black pants all the time, that's me, who walks outside in the middle of the summer, 100 degree weather with humidity that is literally so thick you can cut it. Yeah. Um, so I knew for a long time that I was not going to live there forever. 
Um, however, it, it was serving its purpose. You know, I had a great career down there. Um, I bought a home. My son was in a good school. My husband was happy. You know, I, I was happy. And, um, you know, I, I was happy from the outside, I guess I should say. <laughs> but there was, there was something missing for sure. Um, I definitely felt like my career at that time consumed me. And um, I do believe to some extent that I lived a lot for that instead of, you know, living for what really matters in life, your family, you know, yourself, your self-worth, your self-love, um, having time to exercise, right? Um, and, you know, I met somebody who, and my husband and I had always talked about moving to North Carolina when we retire. Now, we had envisioned when we retire. 50 years from now, uh -huh. if we're lucky, Right. Um, and we had met an individual who connected us to two just amazing, beautiful individuals, like just some of the best people I've ever met in my life. And, um, and I really sincerely mean that. And they own Mountain View Recovery. And I'm not sure if I can say their name because <laughs> I don't want to, I don't, I want to, but I, I don't want to make it public for them. But mm -hmm. these two people are just they're incredible. And, um, they opened up their arms to me. They're like family and I love them. And, um, you know, we met them and we had no idea, um, you know, who they were at that time. <laughs> we were like, okay, we had met a third individual who's not connected to them, but knew them who said, Hey, why don't you come up to North Carolina and check out the mountains, um, and meet, you know, um, this married couple and, um, you know, come see this treatment center that I want to open up. So we're like, okay. It was our anniversary weekend. It was November, you know, um, we got married November 21st. It was literally that weekend. And, you know, he was flying us for free. So we're like, okay, let's check this out. And um, we moved up here and I have to tell you, and I, <laughs> I wish I could like let you feel the experience that I had. But when I walked onto the property of where Mountain View Sober Living is, um, I felt something instantly. Had you ever been to the mountains prior to that? Any mountains? I've been to Utah, okay. so different mountains. Yeah. I actually rode the Colorado River last year for the year before for four days. That was amazing. That's kind of what prompted this whole life-changing decision to move from a busy career to something more peaceful. Um, I had no idea that was going to be Western North Carolina, but I knew it had to be something. And, um, you know, I walked into the home and they were living in this home at that time and um, they opened up their home they cooked us dinner they loved us they were good to my child and they expressed to me why they wanted to open up a treatment center and um, you know they told me that addiction had affected their family for many years that they they didn't know anything about addiction that they were forced to learn because of their family members being affected their own children um, and they went to their churches for help and they just didn't, they didn't know. And one of their sons had um, attended a treatment center in Florida and they had a family weekend where they actually taught them. They actually had them fly down there and stay there for the weekend and taught them about the whole family disease. The thing we were talking about earlier. Exactly. Uh -huh. and, um, and they realized like they had to ship their kids to another state for that to happen. You know, and, and they felt like there was something missing in Western North Carolina. And they knew a lot of people who had struggled or families were affected by addiction and they didn't feel like the resource was here for them in that way. Um, 
and I'm not saying there isn't good programs here because there is good programs here. Um, we started Mountain View and opened up Mountain View because we really wanted to bring that love and affection and let any addict and any alcoholic or, you know, any person seeking recovery know that it is possible. And, you know, we're not a one-way facility. We do have the 12-step immersion, but we believe strongly in finding what works for you because anything can work, right? I've been witness to that. Even in my recovery, the first five years of my recovery was a diehard NA girl. I was in NA meetings five times a week, you know, working NA steps. I've done, and I still believe in the program. I'm still an NA girl, okay? But the past two years, I started incorporating more other things into my recovery to fulfill me. And what I mean by that is, you know, I started to going to church faithfully and participating in church events and and feeling as though I'm giving back, not just taking. Um, and I started working on some things, you know, on an individual level. And I started taking piano lessons. And, you know, I, um, you know, I just, I started going to celebrate recovery because I felt like, you know, I needed more. And this is just me, but I wanted more Jesus. You know, I wanted more of a uh, faith avenue that I felt like Narcotics Anonymous gave me a higher power, but I wanted more of a distinct understanding and guidance towards that, if that makes sense. And I'm not saying that it's not available there, because it is. I'm an NA, so it's available, right? Um, But I just, I wanted more. And so because I wanted more, the good little addict I am, (laughs) I went out and got it. You know, (laughs) I mean, that's what it's about. That's what it's about. And, you know, I still to this day want more. I I do. And and I talked to you about some things that I've also been working on. And um, I'm excited to get involved with Buncombe County and the community and to feel like I'm not just part of the treatment world, but also I can give back to the community on a community engagement level. And I feel like I've been blessed and I know it's not by my own doing. I just do the next right thing, you know, and then, you know, me, I, you know, God puts everything in place for me. And as long as I show up and I do the right thing and if I hurt people, I say, I'm sorry. And I don't be intentional about hurting people. And when I do something wrong, I have the guilt behind it and I try to change. Right. And I continue to be a good role model, not only for my family and for my children, because that's the most important thing for me. Um, but for society, man, for me, I want to be a role model for myself, you know? Who are your role models? Oh, I have a lot of role models. I have a lot of angels that came into my life along the way. I refer to them that way. But um, my mother is a hardworking woman, okay? She definitely was a huge role model, role model for me. She inspired me to... Um, to the, be the best that I could be. My father, too, he's overcome a lot. Um, he had his own struggles. And, I mean, to see where he's at, he's very peaceful. He has found an avenue that works for him that, like, I can't even believe he doesn't, like, you know, I'm Italian, so I still react a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes I have to, like, bring it down a notch. Him, he's mm-hmm. just very calm. And everything's okay. And are you sure you want to think like that? Let's think about something different. And, you know, so definitely my parents are um, key role models in my life. Uh, my children, they're so innocent. And they're just so, 
my sons are literally the, I'm sorry, are the best, best part of my life. And, um, you know, my husband is a great father. And I see that. And I'm like, how lucky am I that I was gifted with this man who loves not only me, but is so good to my children. You know, and my older son, he's not his, you know, by blood, but my husband loves him like his own child. And, you know, that says a lot about a man to step in. And, you know, I I just, uh, people like that inspire me. And then, you know, um, I've met some women in recovery, man. This woman, Julia, you know, I got to give a shout out to her because she taught me how to live. And what I mean that, I, she literally taught me how to live. So I love her like a third mother. Um, I really love this woman, Judy. She's like another mother to me. I swear to you, like God has blessed me with women <laughs> to come into my life and act like motherly figures. And, you know, I have friends that I've met in recovery that I can truly say are my friends, like no matter what will be there for me. And some of them, you know, still work a program. Some of them do not. They, they don't use drugs and alcohol, right? But, you know, some of them aren't as involved as, you know, I guess one may say they should be in the program. But you know what? Like, they're there for me. And, um, you know, when my son was, um, when Connor was born, he was born with a heart defect. And it was probably, not probably, it was definitely the hardest thing I've ever been through in my life. And um, you'll learn a lot about people when you go through something like that. And uh, you find out a lot about people. And sometimes people are scared because they don't know how to talk to you, right? They don't know how to be there for you when you're literally watching your son in heart failure who has to have open heart surgery at four months old. Um, but then you have people who are super compassionate and go out of their way to make you feel loved. And, you know, that's what it's about. It's about going out of your way to make people feel loved, even when you're having a bad day, even when you just want to pull the covers over your face, right? And say, I'm done. Like, I'll talk to you tomorrow. I'm funky. I don't, you know, because I have those days, we right? All do. Yeah, we all do. <laughs> but still, I have a responsibility to go out of my way to make people feel good because you know what? Making people feel good makes me feel good. Always. Every time. Every day of the week. <laughs> yeah. Every day of the week. Um, you hit on a couple things that interest me. Number one is the relationships, right? I was mm -hmm. asking about mentors and you just named off, fired off a big long list of people. And what, what I think about is like an active addiction. Mm -hmm. Right. We have these like relationships that don't have any meaning behind them. Or mm -hmm. it's like the an authentic relationship is so foreign to us. It's not something that we have faith in, believe in. So that process in um cultivating these relationships can be challenging at times, mm -hmm. right? It's a it's a, a process that we must learn and um, it can be can be very challenging, and I know you know from what I do know of the the, the rooms, like they say, to just like ask somebody or ask for help, stick around mm -hmm. behind after a meeting, and like reach out. And I almost feel that like, and do not, I don't want to like step on anybody's toes <laughs> here, but I almost feel that like that like 
that could potentially be um, seen as an obligation, mm-hmm. right? Like the newcomer stuck around and wants to build, is looking for some support, looking mm-hmm. for some support systems. And so I would have some like, I would personally have some like underlying fear. Like, mm-hmm. is this person <coughs> whom I'm whom I'm trying to form a relationship with? to look for some support, walk each other through this process. Mm -hmm. Are they doing it out of an obligation to Mm. the program Mm -hmm. or are they authentically my friend? Do they want to be my friend? Mm -hmm. And I could see some like (laughs) issues there. For sure. And I don't know like how much you want to talk about that, but like how do we learn Mm -hmm. to trust another person how do we learn to cultivate these authentic relationships i was lucky enough that um i've have a retail sales background Mm -hmm. since i was like 16 years old i worked in retail sales so i was able to develop that that skill at an early age because Mm -hmm. i had to build relationships with my customers i was in management i had to develop that trusting relationship with my employees Mm -hmm. though I manipulated the fuck out of both of them. um, (laughs) I, I I learned how to develop the relationship. And so I've carried that over Mm -hmm. into my, into my life in recovery. But for the newcomer, for many newcomers, people Mm -hmm. don't have that ability, right? It's so foreign. Mm -hmm. So like, where do we start? How do we, how do we essentially trust somebody that wants to, support us and then how do we build those relationships because i can see that it it's scary it is scary and trust is scary in general because you're giving something to somebody else and relying on them right and you know and i want to say something about you know real quick also somebody that was a mentor to me was my stepdad because my stepdad when i was using he wouldn't even look at me he knew every time you know and i hated him for that but he pushed me And then when I, you know, finally surrender, he was there for me. And, you know, trust is like, first of all, it goes back to what we talked about, um, like being a two-way street, right? Trust is a two-way street too. And my experience with trust is it's not what you say, it's what you do. So for me, you know, I can go to meetings, I can sound real good, I can meet people that sound real good and they're hanging out with this person and all of a sudden there's a group, right? And I kind of shy away from groups because to me, I feel like if I'm entrusting in somebody, I want to develop that intimacy on an individual basis. And it's not something that I want to process in a group unless everybody in the group I have an intimate relationship with, right? Um, And, you know, I feel like that's something that is a continuous struggle for a lot of people in recovery. And, um, you know, for me, I... I do kind of feel like it's a little bit of a gift, to be honest, and I have a really good intuition. So I can, like I said, I can tell a lot about somebody when I pay attention to how they act, because if you tell me you're this, you know, you're, you know, such a good friend and you'll, you don't talk about anybody behind their back and you don't have judgments and, you know, um, all this, all the stuff, right? But then we go out to eat, right? (laughs) And then you're talking about the girl in the booth over there that, you know, is eating so much and, you know, that's how you have a conversation, 
to me, I'm paying attention to that. My actions don't fall in line exactly. with my, what I've said. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And it doesn't have to be somebody we know, right? Mm-hmm. Because how you present yourself is not always who you are. You know, people show you what they want you to see, not who you really are, right? And sometimes it's scary to be transparent about who you really are. But ultimately, the people that are in your life, the ones that judge don't matter, and the ones that matter don't judge. We talked about that before. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, I would rather have two or three people that I can be vulnerable with and call them and be like, listen, I had a like I had a really crappy day. I sucked today. This is what I did. <laughs> you know, please forgive me. Do you forgive me? Does this make me a bad person? You know, all the crazy stuff that can go on up here, right? I'd rather have that person love me for my mistakes and help me better myself than to be sitting next to me co-signing my bullshit. You know, and I always tell people, you know, a real friend... Ha- Somebody said to me, how do you define a friend, right? I had to learn how to define what a friend is. And to me, the definition of a friend is somebody who has my best interest all the time, period. People can pretend really good, right? But it goes back to what are they doing? I mean, there's a lot of untrustworthy people in the rooms. There's also a lot of... Just in the world. In in the world. That's what I was getting at. Mm -hmm. There's also a lot of trustworthy people outside of the rooms. Right. And, you know, I have met um, I've since I've branched out in my recovery to other areas. I mean, my gosh, like I limited myself for so many years and I stayed in a bubble and that's okay because that's what I needed at that time. Right. But now that I've gone outside of that, I have really met some incredible people. And, you know, people do make mistakes. I want to say that. But to me. Um, on a personal level, I need to evaluate how much that mistake impacts me. And others. Mm-hmm. And people make mistakes, but we're all like trying to figure this thing out too. For sure. So like they could be at a different place along this process of growth to where like, you know, obviously we're all proponents of second chances or else we wouldn't <laughs> right. be sitting at right. this table tonight. <laughs> and so like, yeah, somebody might not behave or act in a way that we approve of, mm-hmm. but at the same time, like they're trying to figure this thing out just mm-hmm. like we are. Um, then the question is how much trust are you okay putting in them? Right. And how do you figure all that out? Um, and I could totally relate to you. Like the first, the first like three and a half to four years, I lived in this refuge recovery mm-hmm. bubble, <laughs> this fixed views, like this shit worked for me. Mm-hmm. Right got my life back. I'm in school. I have a healthy relationship. I have a healthy relationship with my entire family. Mm-hmm. Right? Like I have all these things because of this. So I'm not going to go anywhere outside of it. I'm going to hold on to mm-hmm. it as tight as I can. Mm-hmm. And I'll share it with the people that don't that want it, but if you don't want it, go ahead and fuck off cuz mm-hmm. like this yeah. shit works for me. And like you said, like it only goes so far. And mm-hmm. there comes a time where like Yes, I'm st- I still find value in everything that I learned from it. And I still go two to three times a week and I still mm-hmm. try to meditate every single day. But had I not opened myself up to other perspectives, I would have never met so many wonderful people like yourself, the okay. 65 other people that have come and sat in that chair and talked to me the relationships that have been built 
through just just opening that door right there Mm -hmm. you know not i don't have to buy into anything else just by opening that door was so damn rewarding yeah right yeah so like what does what has it been like how how has that growth that i just kind of like described how has that transferred in your life like going Mm -hmm. venturing off and becoming more involved in your church Mm -hmm stepping in to celebrate recovery like what was that progression like what has that progression been like so I mean it's crazy to me like I thought you know recovery took me to a place that um that I really didn't even think there was a next level right Mm -hmm. I'm like okay this is great like you know my life is good like every I'm happy like I really didn't even know have everything I need right here it's all good right Mm -hmm. you know and then it's like when I started doing things differently and what I mean by differently is just adding more to the mix you know um I really didn't have an expectation I was like oh I'm gonna check this out and I'm gonna have an open mind I'm gonna see how other people do things and maybe it could be cool and if it's not that's okay right because I had an experience I could add to my bucket list that I did which was neat and um you know I ended up like really enjoying it and like you know I just I mean wow, like my mind started to open more and more. And, you know, where I didn't even know I was closed-minded, I started realizing like, oh my gosh, like I've been, again, limiting myself in recovery. Sometimes we don't even realize the barriers that we put on ourselves. It's kind of like, you know, when you meet people and, you know, and I can speak to this too, because I struggle with this too, you know. Uh, Judgment is a real thing in this world. Okay, I'm just going to throw it out there. It's Clearly. A, it's yeah. a real thing. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, something that I've really worked on the past couple of years is, like, starting to, like, really dig deep within myself and realize, like, okay, why am I judging somebody and classifying them as a bad person, right? Just because their reality doesn't look like mine, if that makes sense. You know, people do make mistakes, and sometimes people make bad mistakes, right? And But it's not my job to take their inventory and tell them about themselves or think that they need to be a certain way, right? I mean, that's exhausting. Like, the only thing that's my responsibility is me focusing on Ashley and how Ashley can impact my life but also the lives of others in a positive way. And if that is truly my goal, how is that aligning with judging X, Y, and Z, right? I mean, listen, taking piano lessons, I'll tell you this right now. I took piano lessons as a child. And um, in September, my birthday is September 2nd, my husband uh, was knocking on my office door and it was so annoying I wanted to kill him uh, because people kind of just walk in and out of my office. Sometimes they'd be like, shut that door. But he's like, knock, knock, knock. And I'm like, who's that? Like, I'm like, come in. I'm on the phone, you know, knock, knock, knock. I'm like, what the hell? Like, just open the fucking door. You know, like all mm-hmm. that unspiritual stuff is coming out of my mouth. And uh, finally, I I was like ramping and raiding. I swear, I was stomping my feet to the door because I was so frustrated. I had no idea it was him. And um, on the other side of the door was this little um, package, and it was wrapped in piano music notes. And um, it was really sweet. And I opened it, and of course, I started crying. And he bought me lessons. And the teacher wrote out like on a postcard, Hi, Ashley, your husband contacted me to start you on your journey again to you know, start playing piano again. And, um, 
you know, and I did that and I took lessons every week. I still take lessons and I had a recital in December and like I had people come out and support me and I was like the only adult there. Okay. I'm just going <laughs> to throw it out there. I took literally, there was like high school, there was a five-year-old. Okay. That was at that recital, but you know what? I kicked ass at that recital yeah. and it was fun and it was esteemable and it, you know, and it made me feel good and proud of myself. And you know, Again, something that I never would have thought, or maybe I didn't never think, but I never thought to revisit, if that makes sense, um, has changed me. Yeah. You know, and, and I love it. It's, it's the high you get from running, you know, and I know yeah. that high, by the way. I wanted yeah. to tell you that. I feel that when I'm playing. How old were you when you stopped playing? When drugs came in, 14. 14? Mm-hmm. But you thoroughly were like, invested in it at, yep. up until that point mm-hmm. it was something that you were passionate about for sure something that provided a lot for you as a young mm-hmm. young girl mm-hmm. i'm a huge believer in like revisiting the things that you were interested in passionate about before <laughs> your substance use i mm-hmm. that's what i mean i was talking tonight about the stupid radio show right like that's how this it's not stupid. I know it's oh, it's filthy. You should, have heard it. you should have heard it this morning. I still listen, by the way. I still listen every day. My little Google home system kicks yes, on. Yes, I have one of those. Every morning at 7 a.m. Oh my gosh, I'm good morning. Good thing. Yeah. No, the show at 6 a.m. the show starts. It's just on. But that's how this thing happened. As I was talking to you about my my challenges in school mm-hmm. and my challenges with um, the things that I was learning in class, not aligning with what I was seeing in the real mm-hmm. world. You know, that created a real serious internal conflict mm-hmm. and I wanted to drop out. I wanted, I was like contemplating dropping out of school before I made any rash, <laughs> irrational moves. It's like, all right, Steve, step back. Let's reevaluate this situation. And I began to think about, I was like, what, what if you could do anything in the world, if you could pick anything in the world, you could go back in time and start over the 12 year old, 13 year old Steve. Money wasn't an option. It didn't matter. Any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. What would you do? And that's how, yes. that's how we, this happened, you know? So like revisiting those things, like how do you define success? How do you define success? Like, is it, the paycheck that you get every two weeks? Is it the happy family at home? Like, what is it in your life? Because it's different for everybody. Mm-hmm. What is it in your life that drives you, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what is it that that fulfills you in a way that the chaos out here doesn't? Playing piano. Like, mm-hmm. that's like that's huge. Mm-hmm. That definition has changed so many times in recovery for me. You know, and I think that life lessons come along with that. You know, I I used to think that I had to make all this money to be happy. And then, you know, I did have a decent career making a lot of money and I was miserable, you know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, you know, I had to take a step back and and realize like, okay, what's important to me? First of all, what are my values? What do I like to do? What is Ashley like to do? What's fun, right? It's all new. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, and I do believe, um, and I was talking to somebody earlier about this, you know, when it comes to recovery, you know, you don't have to know who you were before drugs and alcohol 
shoot, you don't even have to pay attention to who you were when drugs and alcohol played a part. You can become whoever you want to be in recovery. You can reinvent yourself, right? For me, I love playing softball. I love sports and I still love those things, right? I, actually, you can see my, my wrist is a little blue. I went to the batting cages on Friday and I hit some balls and I, you know, I'm not going to lie. I was a little stressed after work and I was like, you know what? I'm going in the faster one. And my husband was like, you might want to start slow. And I was like, excuse me? Do you know who I am? <laughs> I was like, I don't need to start slow. I played baseball for seven years and, you know, all this high, mighty crap. Okay. And, um, so where do we stand with a Mountain View co ed softball team? I know. That would be huh? so cool. That would be cool. I'm down. I, I mean, a shoot. There's a list of people that would sign up to play on that team. That would ASAP. be. That would be cool. I, I swear, if there really is people interested, please get you know get in touch with me because I'm about I a, that. I got a hand at the end of the table. I'm about that. Lauren, Lauren Garvey, Janae. Yeah. Y'all hit us up. Let's Jay Cannon. Let's get a All softball right. team going. Coop, come on, yeah. man. Let's go. Coop, Coop. <laughs> um, yeah. Good, good people. Everyone you named. Yeah, the mm -hmm. list goes on and on and on, man. The list goes on and on and on. Parenting, hmm. right? The wild, fun <laughs> adventure of yes. parenting. Um, how old is your oldest son? 13. 13. Mm -hmm. So he was around for some of the chaos. He was. What was, how did you, how have you, being a person in long-term recovery, learned to, to parent? What was that like? Mm -hmm. Like, how did you learn to, like, because again, like back to like some of that balance, like mm -hmm. you go from um, the chaos to finding recovery to putting your recovery first and mm -hmm. going into the rooms and stuff like that. How did you develop the skill to like be a present parent and like be someone that's going to like, because it, it's hard. Like you, it is hard. like you go from almost like the extremes and then like wanting to protect. Mm-hmm your son from all of the things Definitely. that you experienced. <laughs> and so like, how do you, again, like balance, how do you find that balance in creating that relationship mm. with what is now a young man? Yep. Right? He is. And how do you approach it in a way where like, he's going to be receptive mm -hmm. to some of the harsh experiences that life has out there? Like, yeah. what's that like? How do you learn it? Yeah. I need to know. Well, you know, I, you know, and I, I do want to speak to the fact that when I had Zachary, you know, Zachary's my old, oldest son and he is just a brilliant, beautiful boy. Let me just, mm -hmm. let me just tell you that. Um, he's actually way smarter than I am today. <laughs> he's brilliant. And, and, um, I, I know a lot of people say that about their kids, but he truly is. Um, and it's almost kind of scary in a way because he, you know, he was unlocking parental controls at like five years old. I'm just going to be mm -hmm. honest with you. So there's um, no getting ahead of him on this. Nope. Stuff. He's yeah. way ahead of my time. He asked me to help him with some math stuff one time uh, when I was around him and I didn't even know what I was looking at. <laughs> they do it. To no, we talked about this in our school because we have a lot of students that are parents. They do it like totally different <laughs> than we did it. Oh, my gosh. In our day. So crazy. His yeah. his school literally gives him a Mac computer to take home. <laughs> but Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, first of all, I had him very young. I was 15 when I got pregnant and I had him, he was two weeks late. So I can thankfully say I had him at 16. <laughs> uh, his birthday is six days after my, my birthday. And, um, 
you know, at that time when he was born and, you know, I didn't realize it, but I just didn't have the motherly instincts that I have today. And that's me being raw and vulnerable and honest, you know. Um, I didn't start up with the drugs like hardcore until he was a couple years old. And, um, you know, we all know that when drugs come first, everything else comes last. And, uh, you know, thankfully I did get clean while he was still fairly young. And um, his understanding is that, you know, I used to drink alcohol and now I help people get off of it. And to me, that's a blessing. And, and he loves to introduce me as, oh, this is my mom. She had me when she was 16. And I'm like, can you not do that, please? Like, hi. Welcome, yeah, that, welcome that, to the PTA oh meeting. Oh, my right? gosh. It's hilarious. But, um, you know, he really has grown into just a wonderful, wonderful young man. Um, that being said, we have also experienced some super challenging things with him. He has done some pretty crazy things um, that are just scary smart um, and manipulative. And, um, you know, I do believe that he has a lot of the addictive tendencies as I do. However, I also believe that he can use them for the greater good. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't have to turn to drugs and alcohol. And by, you know, the the grace of God, he has not done that. And uh, what scares me really in today's world is this vape crap, um, is the, you know, the pictures that people post on social media of what a perfect life looks like and what, you know, kids are supposed to look like. And, you know, it's all about for, for that age group, social acceptability, yeah. right? It was for me, you know, that's one of the main reasons why I ended up turning to drugs and alcohol because I, I didn't know where I belonged and I found somebody who accepted me. And when I was high, I could be anyone I wanted to be. Right. Um, so it's challenging, man. Um, but I love him. You know, he is, you know, both of my kids are the better part of me. You know, they bring out an Ashley that wants to be a better person in this world. I constantly think about, I mean, from every picture that I post, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to go there because I'm going to go there. I think about what my children would think if I was posting that and they saw me post it. One day they will see yeah, it. Yeah, they will, for sure. In this world that we live in. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, am I cussing on a video with my fingers out and acting all cool and that's the role model that I'm reflecting for my children? Can I do that at home when I'm not around them? Of course I can because I have free will, right? But that's not the person that I'm going to portray around my kids because guess what? I don't want my kids to grow up like that. And I'm, I'm just being honest. I want them, they're innocent right now, especially my three-year-old. He is an innocent little loving boy. He loves Jesus. It's the craziest thing in the world. He literally wakes up every morning. He has to pray before he eats. He does this to me. Okay. I just want to be clear. <laughs> he taught me this. Um, every day it's, I want to go see Jesus. And we go into church today. I literally take him to celebrate recovery on Thursdays. And then I take him to church on Sunday. And that's just not enough for that kid. He has to have more church. Like, <laughs> uh, it's a crazy. I mean, it's really awesome because it's something that was self-taught for him. And I know, don't get me wrong, that I'm influencing him, right? Because wherever I take him, he's learning. And three years old, they pay attention, and I learned that from my older son, you know, <laughs> trust me, he knows how to call me out on my stuff too. Yeah. That one does. But you know, the blessing is, is that I can learn from some of the mistakes that I made with my older son and I don't have to make the same ones mm -hmm. for Connor and for, you know, any other children that I bring into this world, God willing. So what, what about like some of the conversations with the, 
older one about prevention and things like that. Like, how do you approach it in a way that he can hear you? It's hard. It's really hard. Um, My son is not very open about his emotions. He tends to shut down a lot. Which is totally common for somebody that age, Mm -hmm. dude. He's a 13-year-old young male. (sighs) I mean, sometimes you have to build that rapport. You know, you have to, for me, my approach is I try to let him know that I'm here for him no matter what. You know, that I won't judge him. That I love him, but that he has to be honest. And he does, he's 13, he lies, you know. And if he doesn't get what he wants from me, he goes to my mom, he goes to my stepdad, he goes to my stepsister until somebody gives him what he wants. (laughs) Um, But it's hard, you know. I think the biggest and most important thing in dealing with your children, especially with young teens, is to have that open communication and to let them know, you know, I'm not always going to be the the disciplinary parent, like sometimes I just need to hear you and I need to listen. And even if I want to lash out and tell you like, you can't do that, it's going to lead to this and that. Sometimes I just need to hear where they're at and let them know that like, it's safe to talk to me because what's scary is when they don't talk to you and they continue to go down that path and then you don't know what's going on in their life. You know, they feel like they have to hide everything from you and then one secret leads to another. And, you know, I just pray that that doesn't happen but ultimately you know it's it's not in my hands yeah it's not in my hands and then in this day and age with social media and those mm-hmm. things like they, the 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 influence mm-hmm. and the appearance that's presented there can be a very slippery slope for the development of a young man mm-hmm. right and how do we grow up to how do we grow up to treat women when every person on Instagram is showing their ass off or oh, right, a million exactly. likes, how do I know how what's respectable mm-hmm. when every person that's showing their tits on Instagram has 10 million followers yep. and a, a young 13 year old man learns mm-hmm, that, the, sure. that that's how we look at women, yep. you know, objectify them in a way like that. Like it's fucking scary. Dude. It is like, scary. And the whole, you know, and, and for women, you know, cause I can speak from mm-hmm. the, the woman's side of it is, you know, body dysmorphia and body image and, you know, feeling like you have to have your hair a certain way and you have to have, you know, you have to wear a bikini, right. And you have to wear like almost nothing to be seen. And, you know, for somebody personally, myself, you know, who struggled with, with weight gain and weight loss and body dysmorphia, you know, that is super impactful for teenagers and not just women, men too. You know, they're seeing these superstars that are super skinny, cut up, skateboarding, you know, or maybe their friends are getting more attention than the other one and more likes. And all of a sudden they have to look like them, you know, um, it's truly scary. It is, you know, there's, there's always a story behind every picture. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I really try to let people know that because, you might have a girl who looks amazing in a mirror and, you know, from the outside perspective is happy in all her pictures and looks so good. But you know what? She might be struggling with suicidal thoughts mm-hmm. because she can barely eat because she's worried that if she gains one little pound, somebody will notice and she won't have any followers anymore. I mean, seriously, how deep does that go? How deep does that thinking process go? And how do you grow from that? Right. Like, how do you get out of that when the world society is pushing towards that? 
I mean, the Snapchat filters with the eyes, mm -hmm. right? And the and the pretty and uh, don't get me wrong, like I've used them, you know. <laughs> I, I'm just keeping it real, <laughs> you yeah. know. But and then also like the the distortions too. I mean, they do make fun of, you know, visual things too. And I mean, some of them are funny because we that's our human nature. We laugh, but I mean, it's also kind of not funny, right? Because it's making fun of somebody's face looking weird. And you know, I think it just goes back to judgments. Yeah. <laughs> it just goes back to that. And I think that the way that you solve that, to be honest with you, is to monitor. And, you know, you can't take everything away from the kids because it's there. But you can, you know, open up some time frames and say, okay, look, like if you want to use your phone, that's fine. But, you know, you're going to use it between 8 and 10 o'clock. There's no reason why you should have a phone at midnight taking selfies, so sending it to your friends. Turn it in at right. the end of the night. Mom's going to hold it till the morning. Why not? That sort of thing. And monitor it, mm -hmm. you know, and let them know. Let your child know. Like, communicate that to them and say, listen, like, I'm going to get you this phone. If you set that in the beginning, they're not going to expect anything different. And then what do you do when you find something? Well, <laughs> what do I do? <laughs> uh, like, uh, I mean, it's going to happen. Yeah, for sure. Right? At some point, it's going to happen. And so, like, how do you handle that in a way that consequences will be mm -hmm. present? However, you're still, you're not, like, um, betraying their trust mm -hmm. or not losing their trust and that you still have that open form of yeah. communication. I mean, you just said it. You talk to them about it, depending on what you find, yeah. right? You explain to them why... You know, it could be good or could not be good, right? Like what it leads to, what your concerns are, you know, communicate. And they, honestly, your children should be able to do that for you too. Yeah. So like if I'm out there, let's say, I don't know, let's say I go to a restaurant and, you know, the waiter doesn't bring me my food in time and I'm cussing at the waiter. Like my child should be able to say, mom, like, I really don't like that you do that because it makes me feel this way. Right. And it's embarrassing. And I don't I appreciate it if you don't do it again, you know, and, and be able to communicate what that what it does to them, because every action has a consequence, whether it's positive or negative. Damn straight. Everything. Does your three year old play on the phone? Yeah. Um, he he doesn't really play on the phone. We do allow him occasionally to use YouTube kids, but it's literally yeah. a maximum of an hour a day. I know that sounds like a lot, but you're talking about increments of 20 minutes and um, maybe he uses it like for 20 of them a day. Yeah. That wasn't a judgmental question. Yeah. That's like, cause I don't know yeah. what the appropriate. Well, he sees us on our response phone. Is. Yeah. I don't he know sees us on our phone. So, oh. but not, we try not to encourage that, to be honest with you. Um, he's got a lot of toys. We have a little bit of a backyard uh, we just got him like this big car for his birthday. And, you know, I'm trying to teach him other things like how to clean up. <laughs> I know that sounds silly, but he's three years old. We got to get him ready. <laughs> practical. Yeah. Very like, practical. I I'm trying to teach him piano. Um, he's learning at a very slow pace. <laughs> um, you know, but just some cool things that I can give to him. I try to educate him on some some knowledge. And, you know, sometimes my husband is like, he's three years old. <laughs> I'm like, but you know what? It worked on my older son. <laughs> look at, look at, look at Zach. You know, he's brilliant. And Connor loves to learn and he likes to take care of his dog. He feeds his dog. His dog is a hundred pounds. Wow. He's a huge, massive dog that knocks him over, but Connor feeds him. Um, you know, and, and Connor's just like an innocent soul. 
he likes to be outside with nature, with butterflies, <laughs> with animals. Uh, he loves trucks. If you put him with some trucks, he's it's a happy day for Connor. <laughs> so beautiful. What's next for Mountain View? <laughs> what's next what's for Mountain the, View? Yeah, what's on the horizon? Well, um, lots of great things. Actually, we just brought on a, a new another new therapist. Um, and I love our program because it's extremely dynamic. We have people who specialize in a lot of different areas. Um, and we recently added some Qigong. Do you know about mm -hmm. Qigong? Yeah. Um, I love Lauren. She's great. Um, so, I mean, we are hoping to continue to grow. We had somewhat of a slow start. Um, you know, we worked very diligently on building the program and building our reputation because it's so important. You know, um, bottom line is if we're taking, and I call it a pact because it really is, like if we're taking a pact to treat a client, we're literally treating them at their most their most vulnerable time, right? People come into treatment with all kinds of, of hurts, hangups, struggles, right? It's not just, I mean, bottom line is really not about the drugs and alcohol, right? Uh, correct. I mean, once they put them down, like we need to do our part and, and our packed, right? Our due diligence to treat them and address the trauma, address the underlying issues driving the addiction. And, you know, the exciting part is this summer, we really want to focus on a lot more um, outdoorsy stuff, you okay. know, do some overnight camping. Um, yeah. You know, we, we do do some bonfires. We do some groups where we burn some emotions and, and burn some other stuff. Um, and, you know, just really try to incorporate a lot of um, activity stuff because it's so important. It's like you said, you need to treat the physical component, too. Um, we recently brought on a guy who's who's a chef. And yeah, I saw. Oh, my gosh. Food pictures. They're so good. <laughs> Look, I, honestly, and I know people are probably listening that are probably going to be like, Ashley, what? But I have to try his food like almost every time he makes it. Yeah. Uh -huh. That is that's what's going on here. <laughs> Sometimes I'll be like scrolling and I'll see the food before I see the post, like before reading the words <laughs> and stuff. And I'm like, my mind's instantly like, what restaurant is oh, that? Yeah. Like, where is this place? And then I start reading it and I'm like, oh. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> man, they got it going on. It's great because uh, we have an RN there full time, which is different than a lot of places. Um, we also, of course, have our medical director, but... Um, she, the RN there, Melissa, she teaches them a lot about health and nutrition. Yeah. And she, one of the goals in bringing somebody in to cook was to teach them more about some like different kinds of things they can cook, right? Like the other day she brought in um, some black garlic. I never even saw black garlic before. Not familiar. Um, and then what else did she bring? Some kind of onion that was a green onion. It looked like green onions, but it was called something else. Do you remember? Was it a ramp? Uh, it was dug, a ramp. Dug around here? <laughs> yeah, see, I'm yeah. not from the South. Those so. are, like, delicious. Uh, they were really good. Did you try it? Did you try it? You tried no? the black garlic, though, right? Yeah. yeah, it was good. So, you know, it's just cool. And then after, you know, we went on a hike, We took or we mm -hmm. took a walk. Um, we didn't go on a hike that day. Um, but just, again, the physical component, letting people know, especially, like, when they're stressed out and they don't have a lot of coping skills, that... You know, there's other ways that you can get outside of yourself. You know, you don't always have to reach not only for something, but someone, right? Sometimes you can find that internal solution and, um, you know, and get, get out of your own way. And Mountain View, the goal, we don't want to be large, um, but we, of course, do want to grow. And, um, you know, we want to help save as many lives as possible. That's yeah. always going to be the goal. 
That's beautiful. I've heard nothing but wonderful things. Thank and, you. Uh, yeah, everybody I've met from your husband, Jay, Cooper, everybody that I've met over there has just been been phenomenal. So awesome. Yeah. I appreciate you coming over. Yeah, thank how, you for having me. How can anybody get in touch with you? You got an email, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Yes. Where do they find you? How do they connect? Yes. Um, so my Facebook is Ashley Meehan. Spell, um, spell that. It's A-S-H-L-E-Y. And then it's M as in Michael, double E, H as in Harry, A like Apple, N like Nancy. And um, you can always get in touch with me through Mountain View too. Uh, there's a lot of advertisement that's out there for Mountain View. So if you come across it, um, you're more than welcome to reach out via messenger, phone, whatever. I see them all. Um, and, you know, my personal email is, um, it's a little different, but it's ashley.campbell, C-A-M-P-B-E-L-L-08 at yahoo.com. But if anybody wants to chat, I'm always available. Kick ass. Ashley, you're a badass. I th- totally enjoyed this conversation. Cool. Me too. We'll do it again sometime. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Yep. Y'all have a good night. Thanks for tuning in. Bye. Good night. Thank you for listening to the podcast and a very special thank you to the Comfort Inn of Silva, North Carolina for providing this wonderful recording space to us tonight. The Comfort Inn is located at 1235 East Main Street in Silva, North Carolina. They're also a part of the Choice Hotels chain. You can check them out at choicehotels.com. Uh, the Comfort Inn is a recovery ally. They support our work in the Western North Carolina community. They also support community-based organizations like NC Raw. So be sure to give them some love. Thank you guys for tuning in. Good night. Good night.